And so that's the hinge. That's the that's the word that when you look through first Peter, that's the hinge where we're moving from these first first chapter, the first 12 verses from the doctrine of God, from the calling of God into the, the duty of mankind, the conduct of the Christian. And so we're on this last section here this morning. And then next week when we are here, God willing, we'll we'll sort of open that door and we'll walk through it. And we'll be talking more about what is our conduct or what is our duty. And it's important to understand that Peter has this priority. It's not by mistake. Prior to our duty is the doctrine of God. Prior to our conduct is God's calling. And, and Peter is, again, he's, he's ministering to a suffering people. He's ministering to a church that's under heavy persecution. And he's trying to make sure he solidifies their faith in something that's bigger than themselves. He's trying to make sure in a priority way before he gets on to instructions to the congregation, which are very important. He wants to make sure before he delivers this list of things that you need to be working on or examining in your own life that, first of all, he wants to make sure you have your your faith solidified in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you would begin to think that your faith is solidified in what you do or what you don't do. And we've all been in places and maybe been in churches where it felt like a relationship with Christ was just a list of things that we did or we didn't do. And the problem with the list is maybe not necessarily what's on the list, but what gets uh, pushed off the list is Jesus. Because it's really just things we're supposed to be doing or things we're not supposed to be doing. So Peter doesn't want to boil it down to a list. He wants to make sure that there's this strong, eternal foundation for the believer. And that is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then he's going to open this door and say, now that we have that foundation, then we're going to walk through and talk about what's our duty as Christians? What is our conduct as Christians? And in these first 12 verses... I think it's helpful just to say out loud that these opening verses are eternally lofty. And we really shouldn't be surprised if you're trying to trying to describe the doctrine of God, if you're trying to describe the calling of God, if you're trying to describe how God works in the world. I mean, we have a very limited vocabulary. And so when Peter begins to describe what it is that God is about, You can at least appreciate it's going to be difficult to understand how to put those in the right words. And it's going to be mind expanding, if not mind blowing, how we think about what God is doing. For example, in chapter one, verses one and two, Peter begins in what I call this thin air. These first two verses, Peter mentions the work of the Trinity. God, the Father, the Spirit and Jesus and I was sitting with somebody this week. I'm going through the Gospel of John with them. And we got just, we're in the, this is our first meeting. And I was in John chapter 1. And I just started talking about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. And then I said the word Trinity. And I could just tell fog came over the face of my hearer. That's okay. A fog was coming over my face when I was saying it. Because, you know, when you're trying to explain the Trinity, especially somebody who doesn't know it, you can fumble around with what it's sort of like. Well, and it's it's you know, it can be difficult because these these concepts of God are going to be expanding beyond what we would think because we're trying trying to talk about God. And then you notice just in this verse when when you read God elects people according to His foreknowledge. 
That's the very first thing Peter wants you to know. God elects people according to his foreknowledge. Even if you don't know what that's about, you know it's big. You may say, I don't have any idea, but this is big because God's doing something and it's according to his knowledge. It's not according to my knowledge. And essentially what Peter is saying here, and I mentioned this in the very first sermon of the uh, of this text, was that long before your story got started, God had a story that was working. And you may say, you know what, this is when my Christian life started, and you would point back to a time when you were 10 or 16 or 26. But Peter wants you to know that your story actually got started a long time ago. And that's really what he's trying to communicate in these opening verses And then in verse three, God has caused us to be born again into a living hope, which comes through the resurrection of Christ. In other words, Jesus resurrection redefines our past. I'm not going back to my past and saying, well, I'm defined by all the failures that I've had. No, because of Christ, what my past is redefined. The most important thing in my past now is the cross. And it redefines now everything I think about my past because I go back and I can say, yes, those things did happen. But Jesus paid for those things and he completely redefines my past. And then he gives me a hope and he says it in these verses that's imperishable, undefiled, it's unfading. You can see, Peter, he just can't get enough words out to describe that this hope that you now have is kept forever in heaven for you, which brings us to these Two verses concerning this salvation, verse 10, concerning this mind expanding, mind blowing salvation. And listen to how he says it again. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, yours, they searched, they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them, back in the Old Testament, was telling them was coming. It was indicating when they would predict the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them. These are the Old Testament prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels Long to look. Again, even if you don't really understand all of what Peter is saying, you know that this is a big salvation. It's a it's a mind blowing salvation. It's a salvation that started long ago in the Old Testament. And now we're able to see it. We have an advantage. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And not only are the Old Testament prophets pointing to this and we have the advantage of looking at it. Peter even goes on to try to expand your mind as, as sort of as, as as wide as he can get. He says, even the angels are longing to look into this event, this Christ event. And that 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 word they're they're looking for, it means they're bending down they're 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 peering down from heaven and they're trying to get a good angle on this because everything is about Jesus Christ. One commentator writes this. Peter draws a continuity between the Old Testament and the life of Jesus. The Christians to whom Peter writes are not to understand themselves to be practitioners of another new religion founded on the person of Jesus. Do you hear that? We're not we're not another new religion that came on the scene 2000 years ago. There's a continuity. There's something that's happening from the beginning of time. And now it's being revealed to us. No, he goes on to say, rather, they are privileged with the knowledge of the gospel 
that fulfills God's mysterious plan. The spirit of Christ has already been at work and the gospel is one with the message of the Old Testament. So it's important to understand when you open up your Bible, you're not reading about two different things. It's one long history. It's one long story. We're not talking about the old story and then the new story. We don't have two different stories. We don't have three. We don't have six. We don't have seven. We've got one story. It's God's one story that's carried from beginning to end. And we'll see that in a minute. So if you're living in the book of Acts after Jesus has been resurrection and gone, gone into heaven, if you're where Peter is, if you're where we are, we're pointing back to the cross. We're saying the most important, significant event where the center of gravity is, is the cross. If you're Peter who saw Jesus, you're going to look directly at Jesus and you're going to say, you are the Christ. You're, you're the one. And if you're an Old Testament prophet, then you're pointing ahead to Jesus. So everybody, whether you're in the past, you're in the present, or you're in the today, the future, you're all everything's pointing to Christ. There's one long history, and it's all pointing and culminating in the person of Christ. And so before we pivot to our duty as believers, before we concentrate on our conduct, Peter wants to make sure we have a, a firm grip that everything revolves around Jesus. Jesus is the center of gravity for all things. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over, over, over all creation. By Jesus, all things were created and thing, things in heaven and on earth, visible and in, invisible. All things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things and in Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that in everything Jesus might have supremacy. Colossians 1:15. You see how Paul's saying the same thing. He can't say it in any bigger terms. He's tried to say in everything Jesus has supremacy. So Jesus is at the center of gravity for all things. And before we move on, I just think it's helpful to to think about how that's important, how how that truth, Jesus at the center of everything, might have an application to us. Two two ways. Jesus as the center of gravity provides the necessary corrective for a society of navel gazers. Jesus being at the center of gravity provides a necessary corrective if you live in a society that's bent on examining and looking at themselves. You may remember the tennis star Andre Agassi. Some of you, sadly, are too young to even know who this name is. This makes me feel like a dinosaur. But he was a very famous tennis player in the late 90s and the early 200s or the 2000s and 200s back when I was around. And, and not only was he this great sort of powerful tennis player, he had a powerful personality. And one thing that went along with his powerful personality was his hair. He had like the coolest hair and it kind of looked like a lion's mane, if you remember. And he had the headband and he had the long flowing hair and he had this great commercial by Canon. Remember, he, had, he was the Canon guy. Remember what the tagline was? Image is everything. And for Andre Agassi, image became everything. 
his image became his identity. And he wrote a recent biography, and he says this, and listen closely. Every morning I would get up. You know, in his recent biography, he started writing about when he was going bald as a tennis player. Every morning I would get up and find another piece of my identity on my pillow. Isn't that amazing? Every morning I woke up and I found another piece of my identity on my pillow. So I started wearing a wig. Then a fiasco happened. The night before the French Open final, I stood in the shower and felt my wig fall apart. My brother came to help me and put it back together and to keep it on my head, and it took 20 clips. I asked him if he thought it would hold, and he said, yes, but don't move around too much. (laughs) That's a brother for you, right? During warm-ups the next day before play, I prayed, not for victory, but that my hairpiece would not fall off. Of course, I, I, I could have played without my hairpiece, but what would all the journalists have written about if they knew that all the time I was really wearing a wig? Now listen, with each leap, I imagined it falling to the court. I imagined millions of spectators moving closer to their television sets, eyes widening, saying in dozens of language, languages, how has Andre Agassi's hair fallen from his head? Isn't that amazing? It's not that amazing, is it? See, we live in that culture. Image is everything. And my guess is you have the same wig. It may not be on your head. It may be somewhere else. But you're you're leaping through life. And what you're hoping for is that as you leap through life, nobody's really going to see the real you. See, because you're at the center of your world. You're the center of gravity. Everything has to be just right. So you're projecting out. And so when Peter comes out, he's saying, hey, Jesus is the center of gravity. Get your focus off of your navel, is what he's saying in one way. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus, whether you're in the present, whether you're in the presence with Jesus, or whether you're in the past. Do you understand that everything revolves around Jesus? And when Jesus comes, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ. It's not going to be about you. Nobody's going to be looking at you kneeling down. Everybody's going to be looking at Jesus. And so this message provides a a necessary corrective to, to the pastor and every person here. It's not about you. The center of gravity for all things is Jesus. Second thing it helps us with is Jesus being the center of gravity provides hope and perspective for Peter's congregation. And that is the suffering congregation. Peter understands that he knows his people are suffering. He himself is in a a church and he's suffering. He's going to suffer. Peter understands that when you're suffering, you can easily get your eyes off of Jesus and put it on yourself. You know this, whether you hit yourself with a hammer, every, you know, everything is now focused on that place that hurts. But if you've been hit by a hammer in your soul, 
or somewhere else in your life, you, you get focused on those things. And Peter wants to try to encourage his congregation not to think that, well, maybe God doesn't exist or if he exists, he doesn't care or he maybe he's not paying attention. He's trying to remind his audience here that Jesus is the center of all things. All things are wrapping around Jesus. He's he's present. He's in control, even in your suffering. And he could have said these words that in all things, I want you to remember all things. God is working for good for those who love him. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or a sword? No, no. In all things, we are more than conquerors. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities or powers, not the present or the future, no height, no depth. Nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of God. See, he's trying to help people who are suffering to say, I know that you're suffering, but Jesus is the center of all things. And he's going to work together, even your suffering for good. And so I'm, I'm not trying to minimize your suffering. I'm trying to put it in the right perspective. Yes, you are suffering. I'm not trying to take it away. I'm trying to help you say in your suffering, look at Jesus. In your image crisis, look at Jesus. He's the center. Well, before we pivot to next week's sermon about our duty, let's let's hear Peter just one more time remind us of what God has done, that, that Jesus is the center of gravity. And, and in these two verses or three verses, Peter informs us that we're in a privileged position. We're in a unique place in the historical timeline. We can we can see things that the Old Testament prophets wish they could see. We can see things that angels had had bent around to try to look at themselves. Last Sunday, some of you know, I was in Dallas, Texas for Weston Poulos's wedding. Weston married Sarah. And so a few of us were there. And and it's so great because I'm standing, you know, at the center and they, everybody comes in, and then it's the bride and the groom. And, and the very first thing I said to them is I said, thank you for letting me have the best seat in the house. You know, because even if you're, if you're the, on the groom's side or the bride's side, you know, you're trying to bend around, right? You're trying to bend around and see the face of your, your child. And if you're the best man, I mean, you can see the, the bride, but you're, you're always trying to bend around and see. And, and I have this position where I can see everything. And I'm right there. I'm holding their hands. I can, can can feel, you know, whose heart is beating faster. And it's such a it's such a privileged position that you get to see everybody else in the congregation. They have a certain angle, but there's something that's blocking them from seeing the whole thing. Except for me, I get to see the whole thing. And so that's what Peter's saying is you and I, we have this. We have a better than the front row seat. The front row seat still can't see everything. And, and Peter's saying, hey, you have a better than the front row seat. You get to see things people are bending to try to see, whether it's in the Old Testament or from heaven itself. You and I have this privileged position. And so concerning this salvation, he mentions three things, at least in the text, that we can now see clearly. Number one, that salvation is by grace. 
See this in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets prophesied about grace. All the prophets, all the Old Testament is pointing to salvation by grace. Genesis chapter 3. Jesus, or God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. If you're in the seminary world, this is known as the proto evangelium. In other words, the first gospel. This is the first place you hear the gospel proclaimed in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So Genesis 3 records the fall of all mankind. And then after the fall, God catches us by surprise. Instead of coming and destroying his creation, which he could have rightfully done, he comes and he chases after his creation. He, he comes as the shepherd looking, as it were, for the first pair of lost sheep. And in Genesis 13, he reveals something about God's plan of redemption. We learn that there's going to be another person, another seed of the woman, a second Adam. And this offspring will come and he will crush Satan. He will crush evil. He will bring things, even evil things, back to being good. And he's going to restore our relationship with God. But in the crushing of evil... He himself will be wounded. Genesis chapter 15, you remember Abraham is making a covenant with God and part of the covenant uh, vows is you take these animals and you cut the animals in two in this very gory kind of covenant ceremony. And you lay these these now these halves of these animals and in a little trough, the blood runs down to the trough and you and the person you're making a covenant commitment with walk up and down in between in this little alley. And blood gets on your feet. Blood gets on the bottom of your robes. And what you're saying is, if I don't keep my part of the covenant, then may it be to me as it is to these animals. And Abraham has to make that covenant with God. And he falls into a deep sleep. And he doesn't even walk this blood path. Only one person walks the blood path. And that's God. It's a way of saying, Abraham, I'm going to keep my side. Of this covenant. And when you don't keep your side, I'm going to pay your price for you. You see, it's salvation by grace, no matter where you turn in the Bible. Genesis chapter 50, Joseph has been sold into slavery by his own brothers, and now he stands at the right hand of the king. And instead of using his power to destroy the brothers who wanted to have him killed, he decides to use his power to save his brothers. And Joseph's brothers meant evil. But he knew that God meant it for good because we're saved by grace. In Exodus chapter 11, the angel of death, the last plague, is going to come down on the whole countryside of Egypt. And everyone's guilty before God's wrath. And he says, I'm coming down. But there is a way of salvation. Even though death is going to come, there's a way that death can pass over your house. For anyone who would trust in the innocent blood of the Lamb. If you would take a lamb into your home and live with it, and then you would slaughter it and put the blood over your doorpost, when I come down, death will pass over your house. And so when John the Baptist, 1,500 years later, says when Jesus comes across the crest towards the Jordan River, and John says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is the person who's taking away death because we're saved not by what we do, 
but were saved by grace. Jonah, who spent three days buried in the dark belly of a whale, and he came back to life as it were. And he preached to the most wicked people on the planet. And they repented. And Jonah said, God, I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were compassionate. I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding love, abounding in love because we are saved by grace, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's one long story. So we're not surprised when Paul says in Ephesians two, chapter eight, for it is by grace you have been saved. It's not of yourselves. Let's make sure you understand that it's not from you. It's a gift. It's the only way grace can be given. Is a gift. It's a gift got by God. And it's so that no one could boast. Why? Because there's only one person to boast in. So that's the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the first pe- thing that Peter wants us to see is that we have this privileged position and we can see something now. And what we can see so clearly is that salvation is always coming by grace, no matter what period of time. You live in the second thing we see clearly is salvation comes through suffering and leads to glory. You see this, the they, the Old Testament prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Salvation begins and must go through suffering and ends in glory. There are a lot of Old Testament passages you could choose to see this. Genesis 3.15 would be one of them, but probably the clearest is Isaiah 53. When Isaiah, speaking in the spirit of Christ, says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We... We, we're like sheep. We've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. Therefore, give him glory. Give him a portion among the great. For he bore the sin of many. I mean, Isaiah saying this, he must have been amazed. He must have been perplexed. It must have been mind expanding to him that this chosen person, this one who was predicted back in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, he was going to come. And of course, he's going to come. He's going to be like this, this uh, knight on a horse riding in. And, and that's what we're going to see. And then Isaiah learns, no, he's going to have to suffer first before His glory, suffering, then glory, suffering, then glory, suffering first, then glory. You see, this is a tough concept for Peter. You remember? (laughs) Peter, like us, hey, I'm not interested in suffering. I'm not raising my hand for that. Glory. Two hands up. I'm for that. So Peter turns to Jesus and says, you're the Christ. Yes, Peter, you got it. One of the few times, but man, you got it right now. He says, and Peter, in order for me to be the Christ, I'm going to have to die. 
And what does Peter say? Hey, can you step aside here for a second? Let me up, upload you for, with some information here. Uh, we're not interested in the suffering part. We're just interested in the glory part. Peter still doesn't get it because in the garden, remember? He's getting arrested. And what does Peter do? Pulls out the sword, starts swinging wildly, could have chopped off somebody's head and instead he missed, thankfully, and just got an ear. Why? Hey, we're not doing the suffering part. We're just doing the glory part. But Peter's going to learn, isn't he? Suffering first, then glory. One commentator writes this, The sequence of our lives follows the sequence of Christ's life. The sequence of a believer's life follows the sequence of the life of Christ. Jesus suffered first, then entered to his glory, so must we. The Apostle Paul says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with glory. The glory that will be revealed in us. And so Peter is in this letter. You can just he's such a great pastor because he knows his congregation. He knows his his little flocks and these little places in Asia Minor. They're, they're suffering and he he's trying to put his hands sort of around their faces. And he's trying to say, I know, I know, I know you're suffering. But but take heart. It's just it's just a light and a momentary trouble. It's just for just a little a few years. I know it seems like a, a long time for you, but trust me, for eternity, there's going to be glory. So you hang on. You, you keep trusting Christ. You keep putting him at the center and don't don't move away and put it on yourself. He's he's holding their hands. He's holding their faces saying glory is on its way. And it's going to last forever. So you, you can wait. So one perspective we have is we see that salvation is by grace. Another clearer perspective we have is that suffering leads to glory. And finally, this salvation is announced to you through the preaching of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 12. It was not revealed to them that they were ser- that that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have been announced to you, and they've been announced through preaching the good news. You learned about it because somebody preached it to you, and by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So this salvation is announced through preaching and is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Imagine salvation today. Think about this. And and it may be the first time for some of you. It may be the hundredth time or longer. But today, the doorway to salvation is swung open right before you. Isn't that incredible? All of eternity has swung open to you. And now you see It's about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we sit here today in this privileged position. We can see it from the very beginning to the very end. And and now Peter is saying that the doorway has swung up into you. You're in such a privileged position. 
And whoever believes in Jesus, whoever, whether you're the most wicked king on the planet as the person that Jonah talked to, or you're a Pharisee and you look good, but inside you're rotting. Salvation is swung open to you. And whoever would believe could be saved. But it's just not the announcement. It's also the work of the Holy Spirit. Because I can announce it, I can make it as clear as possible, but I have a very limited amount that I can do. There's something the Holy Spirit has to do. He has to lay it on your heart. He has to lay it on your soul. And it may be happening today to you. I can clearly remember being in the sixth grade. I'm living on this little map dot called Lawton, Oklahoma. Not recommending it for your next vacation travel. And I'm minding my own business as a sixth grader. I'm sitting about the third row back. I'm waiting for Forrest Siler to finish his his sermon, which I couldn't recall any words of. But man, they started singing a song and the Holy Spirit, it came down. And I'm sure it was just a little thimble of weight, but it felt like a, a crushing weight. Like, Paul, we're talking about you right now, buddy. And I know you're only 12, but you know you've got some things wrong. And I would say, yep. And somebody's made it right for you. Yep. It's your time. Could be your time today. What a great day. That salvation has swung open and through the preaching of the word and the work of the Holy Spirit, today is a day of eternal life. If that's your day, if that's your wrestling point, my exhortation would be, don't leave without speaking to me, speaking to an elder, saying, hey, some, some wrestling match was happening on the fourth row back on the right-hand side, and can, can you help me with it? Yes, I, I'd love to help you with it. The, the final verse, the odd verse that angels are bending, as it were, over heaven, trying to get a picture of who this Christ is. They're, they're craning their necks to see something they can't quite see. And I guess at a wedding, I have a good seat, but I don't have the best seat. The best seat belongs to the bride who can see in her groom. He's come for her. And he's going to look at her face to face. And he's going to say to his bride, I've loved you from the day I put my eyes on you. And I'm going to take you all the way home. That's the best seat. And that's what this really is a picture of today. Is each one of you sort of get that best seat. I get that best seat. To come forward and say, and have a sense that Jesus is standing here saying, yeah, I've loved you since I've set my eyes on you. And it was a lot longer ago than you thought. And I promise I'm going to take you all the way home. Let's pray together.